guys, guys, guys. Welcome back to Vetfolio Voice. This was such a fun episode because I was joined again by the amazing Dr. Lindsay Bullen. Dr. Bullen and I have podcasted together before, and she is always so positive and so fun. It just makes for a great talk. In this episode, sponsored by Elenco, we take on chronic kidney disease, or CKD, in cats from a nutritional aspect. As many of us know, it can be hard to feed these guys and hard to keep weight and muscle mass on them even when they're eating. So Dr. Bullen helps break down some of the different diet options and considerations, as well as medical interventions that help keep these poor CKD kitties getting the proper nutrition that they need. Dr. Bullen attended North Carolina State University for both her undergraduate and her post-baccalaureate training, where she earned her DVM in 2012, completed a medical and surgical internship in 2013, a nutrition residency in 2016, and a fellowship in 2017. Following her board certification in veterinary nutrition, Dr. Bullen created the Clinical Nutrition Service at the Veterinary Specialty Hospital of the Carolinas, and though she's no longer in academia, Dr. Bullen brings experience and a strong passion for teaching. Dr. Bullen is particularly interested in clinical nutrition application, specifically critical care, multi-disease state, and assisted feeding. Not quite a full North Carolina native, she's still happy to call it home. She currently lives in Apex with her husband and two boys, and as we also learn in this episode, several pets. Let's go ahead and get into it. We're back with Dr. Lindsay Bullen. Lindsay, so excited to have you back on the podcast. I had so much fun the last time we recorded together, so I'm excited we get to do it again. I had a blast as well. Thank you so much for inviting me to come back, Cassie. It's wonderful to see you again. We are so thrilled that you're here. And if any of you guys missed our last podcast together, Lindsay is a board certified nutritionist. And we're going to talk today about chronic kidney disease, something we both feel very passionately about. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics. So I'm delighted that Cassie and I can nerd out together. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's a good description. <laughs> So let's start with the basics. We talk about CKD, chronic kidney disease. So what is CKD? Yeah, so CKD, or as you very astutely put it, chronic kidney disease is going to manifest in a couple different ways. Typically, I see it from a nutrition perspective as degeneration of the kidneys. When they come to me, usually it's prolonged far enough that they really need to invest in certain types of therapies. But it's really important to keep in mind that it spans a spectrum. It could be anything from slightly decreased urine concentrating abilities to increased protein in the urine, which normally shouldn't be there, all the way down to the inability to excrete or eliminate toxins from the body. So when we're talking about chronic kidney disease and communicating to our veterinary colleagues and other professionals, we will often stage it using iris staging guidelines. That's the International Renal Interest Society. And it goes anywhere from one to four in terms of chronic kidney disease. So that helps us understand where the creatinine is. That's one of those toxins we're talking about. It can help us understand when we substate it, if they have hypertension or elevated blood pressure, if there's protein in the urine. And each one of those factors helps us to truly target therapies for the individual patient. Yes. I love the iris guidelines. That's the first place I go when I get a CKD kitty. Because it is so algorithmic. It is so if this, then this, and it'll really walk you through it and clarify those guidelines and, and how to treat these individual cats. 
I agree. And I think it's really important for our veterinary colleagues to keep in mind that the benefit of being a human is we can actually look at the diagnostic results and quantify or clarify, you know, what stage they are. Too often do I see reference ranges go far outside what I would consider normal in terms of kidney values. And with a quick glance, you know, it's green, it's in the reference range, everything's fine. But then when you look at it more closely, oh no, you know, this cat actually has kind of moderate stage two chronic kidney disease, which warrants therapy. So always just encourage anybody, whether they're freshly graduated or um, ready to retire, to really, really look at those diagnoses diagnostic results and make sure that we are all on the same track in terms of what these little kitties have going on. Absolutely. And, you know, I talked about when I, when I first see these kitties, the first place I go is to the iris guidelines. And that's because I, I do feel like I see this fairly frequently. So how common is CKD in cats? It's actually very, very common, especially in our geriatric population. And as you and I were discussing prior to recording, we can even see it in our non-geriatric population. Poor Dr. Cassie has a four-year-old kitty that she's treating right now with chronic kidney disease. So, you know, for me, because I specialize in nutrition and most of the cases that come to me have a problem, I would say that more than 50% of the population that I treat has chronic kidney disease in some form or fashion. The challenging thing is a lot of these same kitties will have comorbidities. So in addition to chronic kidney disease, they also have something else going on. So we really have to tailor our approach to them to make sure that we're not necessarily compromising one organ for another. But I would say it is incredibly, incredibly common. We just need to be looking for it. Absolutely. And I, I would say that's pretty consistent with, with what I see on the general practitioner side, that, that we find it very commonly Let's talk about some of the challenges associated with managing disease. You know, a lot of these guys are, they're on the older side, but like you mentioned, I've got this poor little kitty and he's four years old. And it makes me so sad that we're really going to have to try to manage this for the long term. So can you talk to us about some of the challenges that we're up against? Absolutely. So, you know, as we mentioned earlier, because chronic kidney disease spans a spectrum, in my opinion, it's very important that we try to tailor each patient's you know, therapy is an approach because one diet or one medication might not be acceptable for the others. And so when we think about challenges associated with this disease, one of the most common ones that I see is muscle wasting. And that's usually because they have their normal metabolic demands. So they need normal, moderate level of protein, but because their kidneys aren't functioning well anymore, that protein toxin or the BUN starts to build up. And so we will end up restricting the dietary protein in their diet. And if we do it too much, then we can see that muscle wasting and renal cachexia, cachexia again, being kind of that active breakdown of muscle, we're going to see that with or without diet changes, but the more severe our dietary restriction, the more severe that cachexia might manifest. So that's one of the things that I try to balance is, can we restrict enough to lessen the workload of the kidneys but not so much that I'm starting to see them waste away. The other thing that can be helpful is to make sure they have plenty of fat calories. So typically kidney diets are very high in fat and that's so that they can get the energy they need and that protein in the diet can truly go to keeping their muscle mass normal. Other problems that I'm sure you and I see is anorexia or dysrexia or hyperexia, any one of those things. So anorexia, not eating, hyperexia, eating less than normal, and dysrexia, meaning that there's a change to eating behaviors or patterns. And that's another incredibly common thing, whether it's from the disease and that buildup of those toxins or the medications we're trying to give them or more likely a combination therein. 
I love that you brought up the renal cachexia because I think that's one of the biggest challenges in dealing with these kitties long-term. And one of the things that I'm really worried about in my little four-year-old that we have to try to manage chronic kidney disease for is how am I going to keep muscle mass on you? I mean, in addition to the protein restriction, like you talked about making it difficult to manage muscle mass and then kidney disease leading to the loss of muscle mass overall, it can be hard to manage weight and appetite because sometimes they just don't want to eat. They don't feel good. So what are some of the ways that we can help combat anorexia and dyspraxia and maintain that muscle mass in these kitties? That may be two separate questions, actually. (laughs) <laughs> That's okay. You know me. I love to talk so we can try to put all in together. <laughs> so, you know, amazing question. And one that I'm sure all of us and our colleagues out there are, you know, battling with, you're probably going to get differing opinions from different nutritionists. In my opinion, the most important thing is to keep these guys eating. Now, if I can get the pets or the patients to eat the best diet, that's a huge win. Everybody's happy, you know, high fives and back slaps all around. But I would say maybe 25% of my patients actually read the book and do exactly what I say. And the 75% other patients are on plan B, plan C, plan D, maybe plan double Z, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) or double Z, depending on where you're from. But, you know, we have to keep in mind that there's going to be different iterations based on what that patient is willing to do. So again, kind of going back to it, there are so many different renal therapeutic diets that are out there. There's over 20 from different oh, wow. manufacturers. I know, right? Everyone's like, ah. <laughs> different manufacturers, different forms. So canned dried stew. There's even, you know, fresh cooked from some reputable companies. There's different flavors. There's different, you know, palatins, different olfactory, you know, sensations that we can provide. So it, it is really unlikely to find a cat that refuses all 20 plus diets. But the question is like, do clients actually really want to go through a 20 diet diatribe? Most of them don't. So when you have that patient that's tried five or six and the client's like, I am done. It is more important that they eat rather than cannibalizing their own tissues, because that's actually going to compound their cachexia even worse. And again, you know, there's other, there's 20 plus diets out there. So if I can get them to eat a commercial product, that's appropriate. That's amazing. There's other things that we can do too. We can do tailored homemade diets. That's what I specialize in and others like me. So if you are ever in need of a board certified nutritionist, you can go to acvn.org backslash directory. And there's a list of all the board certified veterinary nutritionists that are actively taking cases, whether you you want one in your time zone or not. And then, you know, other things we can do, whether it's a commercial diet or a homemade diet, whether it's a renal diet or not, which I hope it's a renal diet, we can add toppers and palatins. So those are going to be things that make the flavor better or make the olfaction better. So for example, kitties, they don't have sweet taste buds, but you'll get that odd cat that really likes syrup or cantaloupe or things like that. My own cat likes sweet things. I'm like, that's weird, but okay. (laughs) They really like, you know, meaty and acidic. So things like baby food, things like yogurt and sour cream, even Purina Fortiflora, the hydrolyzed digest is a really good palatant. In my experience, it works about 75% of the time. Purina HydroCare is a product I absolutely love, A, because it increases their water consumption. So that's a double win for the kidneys. It's also very flavorful. So you can use that as a gravy or a topper, you know, to kind of mix in there as well. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, she just said to put protein on top of a protein restricted diet with any sort of topper or palatant, 
really we want to try to keep it to less than 10% of the total caloric intake so that it is not unbalancing what we are trying to accomplish with that renal therapeutic diet. If it's more than 10%, you might actually add a little bit too much phosphorus, a little bit too much protein. If it's less than 10%, it tends to be negligible. So you're still treating them appropriately. And then if all of that fails, we have wonderful things like appetite stimulants. And there's many available on the market now. So my personal favorite, I'm not just saying this, is actually Allura. It's capramorelin. And the reason why I like it is because it mimics natural physiology. So it is a ghrelin mimetic. When we think back a long, 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 long time ago to our physiology, which I had to be reminded of during my nutrition training, ghrelin is the only hunger hormone. Everything else in the body tries to make you feel full. Ghrelin is the only thing that makes you feel hungry. So I love that it mimics natural physiology. It also has a masking agent. This sounds really silly, but I've tried Allura and I've tried Entice before. They kind of taste like a bitter cough medicine. They're not great but the Allura goes away pretty instantly. And then it kind of tastes like Diet Dr. Pepper after that. It's very interesting. So I love that Muritaz is another FDA-approved product in cats. It's transdermal mirtazapine. There's a couple others on the market, but those two are kind of my favorite appetite stimulants to use in kitties personally. What about you? What is your opinion on appetite stimulants? <laughs> yes, no, I think I think they work really well and they have a great place, especially in managing kidney cats. The Capramorellin, absolutely. I've used Entice many times. The Allura, I have not had the opportunity to use yet, but I have, I just haven't had the patient for it, but maybe, maybe I will with this kitty at some point. I hope not, but I've learned a lot about it and talking to different specialists. And from what I understand, you know, that, that same drug as entice that capramorelin, but in a formulation that's much more friendly to the kitties where they're much more willing to take it and not get upset about it. Yeah, absolutely. And full disclosure for the listeners out there, I am a member of the Elenco Speaker Bureau. But again, I am saying this because I truly believe in the product. The thing that I like about Allura versus Entice, I used to use Entice off-label in cats all the time because that's just what was available. Sure. But, you know, they have made the math really easy in terms of Entice for dogs. I have to bust out my calculator if I use Entice for cats. So one of the things I love about Allura is they've changed the concentration so that it's 20 mg per mil. And with a 2 mg per kg dosing, you just move their weight in kilograms over one decimal spot. So for example, if it's a five kilogram cat, it needs 0.5 milliliters. Super easy math. For the listeners out there, again, your dose should always be less than their weight <laughs> um, by a 10th. And then again, it has that masking agent. So when I tried Entice for the first time, I was looking for something to wash my mouth out with because I was like, oh, it's so bitter. Like, <laughs> and, and the truth is, I actually kind of wish they'd put that masking agent into the Entice. That'd be great. But with the Allura, again, that bitter, it hits you in a second and then it goes away. And I personally have actually started using Allura off-label in small dogs because huh. it's the same thing. And the small dogs that are really fighting it, now they just get nice Diet Dr. Pepper. Hey, <laughs> so. I, yeah, I could, I could handle some Diet Dr. Pepper. That yeah. doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about maybe the mentality of like, well, you know, do we want to make them eat? If they're not eating, it's because they don't feel good and, and we need to take other measures to get them eating. What's your opinion on that? That is such a great question. And that's something I hear from clients all the time. They feel like it might be considered inhumane to force feed, you know, your pet or to force it to feel hungry when they otherwise feel not well. And, you know, the thing that we have to keep in mind is the body cannot heal. The body cannot survive unless it has nutrients and unless it has energy. And so I am a huge, huge fan of using appetite stimulants. I'm a huge fan when appropriate of using assisted feeding, because if we don't, their bodies are just going to waste away and they're going to lose the battle sooner rather than later. So what I will 
typically counsel my clients on is again, you know, you've got that one ghrelin making them feel hungry and you've got 10 other reasons why they're not. We definitely need to treat the 10 other reasons. If they're nauseous, give them antiemetics. If they're painful, give them, you know, analgesics. If they have a fever, you know, treat the fever, all the things, because it can be hard for appetite stimulants to break through. But if we can, we can buy them more time while we're diagnosing, while we're waiting for our treatments to become efficacious, we could potentially have saved that life and saved that relationship with the clients. So I'm a huge, huge fan of encouraging them to eat. And as I said before, you know, using assisted feeding where appropriate to give that patient more time, you know, and more quality time to, to heal and to, you know, recover from their azotemic crisis. Sure. And you know, like what you're talking about where they have one thing making them hungry and 10 things making them not hungry. When we're talking about our CKD kitties, I mean, the underlying reason there is that their kidneys are deteriorating and we can't fix that. So let's at least, you know, manage the symptoms as best we can. Like you said, with, with anti-nausea medications and fluids and, you know, pain meds where appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. And one of those treatments being let's keep them eating so they don't waste away in the meantime. Absolutely. And I think it's really important again, and I mean, communication in general with veterinary medicine is critical, but especially for what I do, you know, people just literally pay me for, to talk. And for my opinion. So I, I need to be able to communicate effectively. And when I'm talking to my clients and I, I can feel that hesitation, I say, okay, well, let's think about it. You know, when is the last time you had a GI bug, for example, how did you feel? And, you know, I felt terrible. It's like, and you didn't really want to eat, but once you started getting those nutrients back, you weren't as weak anymore. And you, you know, eventually were able to kind of get back to your own routine. And that's the same thing with our kitty cats. You know, it's not that they are consciously, at least to the best of my knowledge, you know, our conscious is like, I refuse to eat today. It's just like, <laughs> you know, their, their senses are masked, their tummies off because of the antibiotics or the toxins that are building up. They're just, you know, they're not really feeling it or they're tired and they're like, man, that food bowl is 12 feet away and that's too far. <laughs> so if we can, if we can make it easier for them to get the nutrients they need, it is much, much more humane than watching them starve to death. Absolutely. Absolutely. With the ultimate goal being, of course, to resolve this period of inappetence and not, you know, drag these poor kitties on if we're just at the end here. Absolutely. I'm, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, you know, chronic kidney disease, as you said, it's progressive and I, I've got my own chronic kidney kitty. And so it's Aww. important for every, you know, client or pet parent to have that conversation. Like when is enough enough? And everyone's going to have a little bit, you know, different kind of timeline, but that's one of the reasons why it's just so incredibly important to have a positive relationship with your veterinarian so that we can act as a guiding post for our pet parents and say, you know what, I, I think it's time or nope, I think they got a little fight in them. And I'm really lucky, you know, I diagnosed her during my internship and she's had it for eight years and it's progressed, wow. but like this, you know, 16 year old cat is still kicking much to my husband's chagrin. Like <laughs> He was like, Are her kidneys worse. Tell me they're worse. I'm like, no, they actually got better. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's actually going to live for 10 more years. <laughs> I, know, I ultrasounded her the other day. Um, Cause she has IBS and I was like, maybe she's got lymphoma. And my husband was like, she have lymphoma. And I was like, <laughs> Nope, she looks perfect. And he was like, Oh, <laughs> He's like, oh, fantastic news. She's going to live to be 22 peeing on the floor. <laughs> I was like, eh, maybe I'm sorry. I love it. I uh, love she's, it. Like, she's very, very sweet. She's like 
that's kind of the challenge she's such a sweet cat, but she will right. not use the litter box with her multiple urinary accents associated with her, uh, her oh, CKDs. <laughs> the things, the, the lengths we go to for our it's pets. True. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, kind of talking about these renal diets, especially since it sounds like you've got you know, obviously lots of professional experience, but also personal experience with these knowing that despite our best efforts, you know, to get them to eat one of these 20 products that are on the market, it's sometimes we, we just can't do it. They're just sometimes not the most appealing diet with the protein restriction. So of course we've talked about the most important thing is that they're eating at all, but we want them to eat a renal diet. Why, why do we want them to eat a renal diet? So there's been a lot of research done with cats and dogs to try to figure out, you know, what is kind of the, the first treatment, you know, what's going to be the most important in terms of their, their treatment course. And every single one of them is dietary intervention. Now that doesn't mean that other medications, other therapies aren't important. They absolutely are based on the individual, based on where their chronic kidney disease is staged and how fast they're progressing and the cause and things like that. But basically reducing or restricting nutrients that typically build up with chronic kidney disease helps to reduce that progression. So for example, the most important nutrient that I consider with my chronic kidney patients is actually phosphorus. It isn't even protein, phosphorus first. And that's because the kidney is responsible for eliminating phosphorus in the urine. When it doesn't do that, it starts to build up in the body. Well, that that's certainly bad because then you can get, you know, the soft tissue mineralization, things like that. But what a lot of people actually don't, you know, remember or understand or or haven't been taught, which I honestly wasn't until my residency, is that elevated phosphorus actually inactivates the alpha-1 hydroxylase enzyme in the kidney. And that enzyme is critical to converting vitamin D calcidiol to calcitriol, which is the active form. So huh. by having, I know, right? And so then if you have that going on, you can see secondary renal hyperparathyroidism. You can get those, you know, the rubber jaw, which is like horrible if you've seen oh, it. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, I hope you never see it. It's so bad. Yes, it's terrible. But basically these poor guys end up having a vitamin D deficiency in the form of calcitriol. They end up having calcium deficiencies because they don't have that vitamin D to actively absorb it. And then their phosphorus is sky high. And so huh. obviously they feel like poo-poo and it's just, it, it's compounded over and over and over. So every single renal therapeutic diet that you're going to see is going to have some degree of phosphorus restriction, A, so that it doesn't build up in general, but B, so you don't get that, you know, cascade of sequela that follows it. And then you're going to see varying degrees of protein, either reduction or restriction. And some of them aren't even restricted. We have to keep in mind that our kitties are obligate carnivores. And so, you know, the, the very, very severe kidney diets that are appropriate for stage four might have mild protein restriction, but their essential amino acids are going to be augmented so that they don't actually have amino acid deficiencies. Whereas, you know, for example, the Hills early renal support or the Purina NF early care or Royal Canin just changed the name. So I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, but it's, I think it's the senior consult renal support. <laughs> All of them have really nice, solid, moderate protein levels. So they're, they're not actually restricted at all. It's the phosphorus that's low. It's the sodium that's low. The potassium could be variable. That's going to be based on the patient, but that's why diet's so important is because these diets they are not appropriate for maintenance. So restricting in a healthy animal could be harmful, but restricting in these chronic kidney cats can be very, very helpful and slow progression. And in some cases can be life-saving. Sure. Sure. And important. It sounds like to make that distinction between an early renal diet and a renal diet, 
is there a point, I mean, I think you can tell the difference between the diets because one says early and one says not, but is there a point at where we're watching our blood work, watching our patient um, that would tell us, hey, we really need to get away from the early renal and move on to a renal diet? Yeah, that's a, another awesome question. There's a reason why you do this. <laughs> <laughs> just like so, to sit here and pick people's brains. I no, love I, I love it. Like I said, I love nerding out with you. So, so yes, you're going to get different opinions again through the nutritionist and through the internal medicine, you know, community. For me, if I am seeing signs of chronic kidney disease, but they're not yet, you know, solid stage two and azotemic, I am typically pretty comfortable keeping them on an early renal diet. So for example, if our kitty cats, we noticed that their USG was 1065 and then 1050 and then 1040, and then suddenly it's 1016. And I'm like, okay, their creatinine staying the same, but their concentration is dropping. I'm like, maybe we should consider, you know, an early renal diet, obviously, you know, ultrasound, things like that, just to confirm. The other thing is if they have protein in the urine and depending on how much, because again, those early renal diets have a little bit higher protein. But if it's mild, you know, maybe the diet is appropriate and it's a reduction from their current diet. That's one reason why a dietary history is so important because it could, you know, very well be a reduction or it might not be. Or if they're hypertensive, you know, then I, I might go ahead and put them on an early renal diet. For me, once that creatinine is at about the two stage, and I, I realize that that's, you know, already into stage two, but when it's about two, then I'll say, you know what, we really need to start considering transitioning from an early renal, probably to a just full-blown renal therapeutic diet. Again, keeping in mind that because there are so many and they're so different, I need to know what I'm looking for. So for example, if their phosphorus is elevated, I want to, I would want to make sure that whatever diet I choose is lower in phosphorus than the early renal diet. If their protein in the urine has markedly increased, I would want to make sure that whatever diet I choose second is lower in protein. So it really helps to know what you're looking for before you just say, well, let's put them on a renal diet because they're all just, they're so different. Yes. And again, reference back to that directory of veterinary nutritionists when you want to know what diet you switch to next. Well, and the good thing is most of us are very, very nice and we love nerding out with everybody. And a lot of us will actually provide courtesy recommendations. So, you know, if you're a colleague and you're like, gosh, this is really confusing or they have pancreatitis or IBD or just like eight different problems. What do I do? You know, shoot an email, pick up the phone to anybody that's accepting clinical cases. And hopefully, you know, somebody will be able to respond. I personally absolutely would, you know, respond. It might take a little bit of time, but I will definitely respond about your cases. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I think we all have very full email inboxes these days. (laughs) So one of the things you mentioned is that these diets are not appropriate for maintenance. And so in that vein of thinking, can we talk about the fact that they are prescription and how we talk to owners about the fact that this is a, a prescription diet? Absolutely. This is definitely something that pet parents and clients talk with me about all the time. I recognize, especially because I have three pets and every single one of them is on a prescriptive diet. My four-year-old boxer thing has IBD and like skin issues. So she's on a hydrolyzed diet. Don't tell anybody, but I have a fat cat. (laughs) She's on a weight loss diet. And then obviously I've got my kidney kitty who also has IBD. So she is on a a multifunction therapeutic diet as well. And I get it. They are expensive, right? They, They are very costly. 
So it is really important when we are a telling our clients that your cat or dog has a disease that won't go away. You know, we can't cure it. It's going to be progressive. And now we're dooming them to be on a prescriptive diet for the rest of their life. It's important for us to communicate why it's important. So we already talked about what, you know, nutrient profile we're looking for with those diets. But I think it's important to take that next step, as you said, and explaining why these prescriptive diets are vastly different from anything they're going to find over the counter. And if they do try to find a, you know, quote unquote, over the counter substitute, it won't actually be doing or treating the disease that we're trying to treat. And if that's their choice, then it's our job to educate and, and say, okay, you know, we have explained to you the benefits you have decided you've elected not to do that. That is at your discretion. But again, providing and educating our pet parents so they can make that educated decision and explaining why it is so important. But then the other thing is explaining the cost, right? So I would hear from pet parents that the reason why, because if you take a look, for example, at, I think it's Purina EN, that's actually okay for maintenance. It's okay for puppy growth. Like, so why is that one prescriptive? Well, again, it's because these diets in general were designed to treat disease processes. And as such, it requires a veterinarian for diagnosis and it requires a veterinarian to recheck and make sure that the patient is responding the way that they're supposed to. So not all prescriptive diets you know, are super restrictive in nutrients. Some of them are not, but again, we have to keep in mind, we are using them as a drug. We're using them as a therapy. So when we think about it, it, this is not some glorious scam to make money. The actual revenue from selling food is tiny. The margin is tiny. It actually makes no sense to have physical inventory, like, like a massive one, you know, if you're in general practice, of course, have small bags of the ones that you use most often to send them home. But a lot of us now are turning to online pharmacy so that we can reduce that cost of goods sold or cogs and really, you know, increase our profit margin. But again, it's not about the profit. It's when we think about things that are designed to treat, that is a drug by the FDA standards. And there are actual documents that say, okay, now we have pet foods that are being prescribed um, with a prescription as such, they are an adulterated drug. And so how we get around that is there is, and I'm going to, I'm, I can't remember it, so I'm not going to quote it, but there is basically an addendum to these laws that say the FDA will use their discretion for use of these adulterated drugs, as long as there is a veterinary patient client relationship, as long as they are being prescribed you know, based on physical exam and diagnostics and, you know, are being rechecked. We have to remember nutrition is that iterative process. So that is how we get, a, how we get around it. How we can be prescribing these adulterated drugs is with that relationship, with that education. And I don't know about you, but I, I have a lot of clients come in already diagnosing their, their pets. And usually by the end of it, I have re-diagnosed them with something else. <laughs> so my preference is not for my clients to diagnose and then subsequently, you know, prescribe things to their pets unless they're a fellow veterinarian. So, <laughs> and even then sometimes I will and tell and you, then like, even then I'm always here things I shouldn't be, I, I maybe should phone a friend for. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about what we do. I mean, I feel like the majority of our colleagues are just so gracious and just want to form a network. So, you know, find, find your GP friends, find your specialist friends, create that bond, and then absolutely phone a friend. I phone friends all the time. <laughs> Same. Same. I mean, obviously like here we are right now. <laughs> and unlike, you know, Purina EN or, you know, JD or JM or something like that, which is labeled for puppy growth and for adult maintenance and stuff like that. I mean, these kidney diets, they're a whole different animal. Like we really don't want these being fed 
to an animal that doesn't have kidney disease, like you mentioned with the, the protein and the phosphorus restriction, that could, that could actually be kind of detrimental if, if it's not an animal with kidney disease. It, it certainly can, depending on the diet. So what I would recommend one do is actually take a look at the nutrition adequacy claim, which is available on every single prescriptive diet, or at least it should be, if they're following the rules, and you can actually tell what it's designed for. So for example, Royal Canin products, which I, I very much like, that's actually what I'm feeding my own cat, but that tends to be more restrictive. So a little bit lower protein, a little bit lower phosphorus. I love it because it's a lot lower potassium. So when I get those hyperkalemic cats, which doesn't happen too often, when it does, I know exactly which line to go for. If you take a look at their nutrition adequacy claim, it actually says intended for intermittent or supplemental feeding only feed as directed by your veterinarian. Now that doesn't mean that I have to stop feeding my cat that it just means that it is not intended for a normal cat to be fed this long-term because it's so restrictive, which is why it needs to be fed under the direction of a veterinarian. Whereas if you take a look at Hills KD, or at least the last time I took a look at it, just in case they changed it. It had actually undergone feeding trials for adult maintenance. Now it's still restrictive, but it has undergone feeding trials to demonstrate at least for, you know, an eight week-ish period that it's not providing, you know, significant detrimental effects to, you know, to those other cats. So in a multi-cat household, for example, and there's a lot of those out there, I will typically choose a renal diet that has undergone feeding trials for adult maintenance, because I know if the other cats get it, it's less likely to cause a big deal. I still tell the clients that every pet's unique, watch them carefully. If they're muscle wasting, like, you know, you got to separate the feeding, but at least it's a little bit safer. Whereas in a single cat household, I am more willing to be a little bit more restrictive or at least communicate the, you know, the pros and cons. And again, in my household, I've got chubby cat who is on a super high protein, high phosphorus diet. Cause she's, you know, weight loss. And then I've got my skinny, floofy kidney cat and everything is restricted in her and they have separate feeding bowls and I feed them three times per day. And like, sometimes I'll catch fat cat, you know, sneaking over <laughs> there. And I, I just give her a little waddle of smack and she's like, oh, okay. And goes back. <laughs> but you know, when I got really busy in the throes of work and after having my two kids, I almost bought the automatic feeders, you know, like the microchip feeders, because I could not keep them apart and I was too tired. So I think it's a really good opportunity to bring those in. Like if you have to separate the pets or the patients, those microchip feeders can be really, really helpful. I was lucky again, because my my husband stepped it up, even though he's not a huge (laughs) fan of the kitty cats and was like, no, no, like I'll help feed them, you know, multiple times per day. And so that way, the skinny cat has the opportunity to finish all of her food so that fat cat doesn't have access to it. So I, I feel like I can relate to fat cat. Like sometimes you just need some extra snacks. I get, I mean, I get it. <laughs> I went to a human dietitian and they were like, you're fat catting yourself. I'd like restricted myself so much. I was like, what are you oh, talking no. about? <laughs> Which, okay, we're good now, but it was really embarrassing. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but doesn't that just go to show like the difference between human physiology and animal physiology? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the different diets. We've talked about toppers and appetite stimulants and all of these different things. What if we're, we're doing everything that we can and our poor little CKD kitty, they just won't eat. Yeah. So I think that is another opportunity to have a, you know, heart to heart with the pet parents and just say, Hey, like, what are your goals for your kitty cat? Right. If the kitty cat still isn't eating, if it's, you know, been one day, two days, you know, multiple days, if this is a repeat offender with these, you know, anorexia type crises, then, you know, again, having that heart to heart and saying, Hey, 
It's not humane if they're starving. So we either need to consider assisted feeding, which again, I am an advocate for, or considering humane euthanasia. And that's not wrong either. Assisted feeding is not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart. And it is, you know, time intensive, labor intensive, and it can be costly. But again, it can be life saving. It can be wonderful. And I remember when I started vet school, I had pretty, you know, ill-conceived notions about assisted feeding and was in the, it is cruel to force feed a pet camp. My kidney kitty is definitely going to get a feeding tube. Luckily she's a chow hound, so we're not there. But the most important thing when we're talking about assisted feeding is, is what type of assisted feeding and then education for that client. So is it just, you know, temporary while they're in the hospital to see if they can rebound? Okay. Then a nasogastric or a nasoesophageal would absolutely be the way to go. Then the pet parent doesn't even have to see it and it's not surgical. You know, you can either do light sedation or if they're already kind of, you know, down and out, you can go ahead and place it. But that's a great way to buy yourself more time while you're seeing if you can get them through that azotema crisis. It's also a really good option if you know you want to place a feeding tube, but they're not stable. I, I've definitely had colleagues that are a little bit more aggressive and will go ahead and anesthetize that down and out kitty cat. And that, that's, you know, absolutely their choice. For me, I'm like, let's place that NG tube, see if they're alive tomorrow. And then <laughs> if, if they're doing well and their blood pressure is better, we can talk about surgical placement of a, you know, an E-tube. And so E-tubes are really what I love, the esophagostomy tubes. If you haven't placed one before, they can seem a little daunting, but they're actually fairly easy. They're really quick. If you have the opportunity to partner with somebody that has access to cadavers, it's a great opportunity. There's also, I've seen a couple like non-cadaver type practices that are really cool, but it takes anywhere from five to 10, maybe 15 minutes, either heavy sedation or really light anesthesia. And, you know, I, again, they can be life-saving. I love them because you can use it for enteral water. So you don't have to poke them anymore. Oh, you yeah. do want to watch out for their sodium, but yeah, you don't have to do sub-Q fluids, which is nice. I love them because you can put that, you know, Dr. Pepper appetite stimulant down it. I like it because you can give their amlodipine down it. You can give their antiemetics or their antibiotics down it, or their probiotics or whatever you're, you know, having to medicate them with, you can put that down the tube. And then I love it because I can meet their nutrient and their calorie needs by using the feeding tube. And if the size is chosen appropriately, and so for kitties, it's usually an 18 French, then they can actually eat around it. And it, they have the opportunity to do that. It's great. But again, all comes back to communication. You know, if you've got an outdoor kitty or a wild cat household or a two-year-old that's going to pull them by the neck, probably not a good option for them. If they work five jobs and they're not going to be home and they can only feed the cow once a day or even twice a day, that's probably not a good option for them. But if they have the ability to feed three times per day, if they have the ability to purchase canned foods and potentially a liquid diet, if they have the time, you know, when you first do it, it's probably 30 to 45 minutes. Eventually it's like 15 minutes, but it takes a little practice. Then it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful option. Absolutely. And I think that's a lot of really good information as far as like client communication and who's a good candidate. And I will just echo the, the easy to place. I've placed a fair number of feeding tubes, both in patients. And then, you know, if, if people have been listening for any length of time, they've probably heard stories about my little cleft palate puppy that I, ha I had him for, I had him for a while. I think it was, I think it was eight months. We got him better and he was doing great. And then his palate split again and it just, it wasn't fair to him. But I say all that to say a lot of feeding tubes during that initial surgery period. And, 
And yeah, very easy to place, very fast, easy recovery on the pet. And he did great. You know, this was a, a baby, baby Labrador, and even he could handle having an E-tube in. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it's going to be really important to communicate all that to the client and talk with them about the pros and cons, because let's face it, nobody likes to be surprised when it comes to medicine and nobody likes to be surprised when it comes to medicine and COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. So, even less so than they did even, before. Even less so. <laughs> like, I, I remember it was one of my friend's birthdays a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, we should surprise him and like rent a movie theater and take him there. And all of us were like, I don't, I, I don't think we should surprise him. I think we should just ask him what he wants. Like, you know, and that was like a happy surprise. And so again, we have to keep in mind that when we're telling our clients, I am again, all for feeding tubes. Obviously you can tell from my passion and enthusiasm, but I absolutely will communicate, you know, the possible cons associated. And then I will absolutely give them references and resources if they have any questions or concerns. Cause the worst thing to do is to place this feeding tube and then not be available if there's a problem, because then it's a negative surprise. And they're like, what do you mean your clinic's closed because of COVID? Like, what are you talking about? So, you know, if I'm not available, where's the nearest emergency clinic? you know, giving them kind of the FAQs, like if it becomes clogged, do this, you know, if you run out of food, do this. If you need to get in touch with somebody because of diarrhea or because of vomiting or regurg, or if the tube pops out, which randomly happens sometimes, sure. you know, X, Y, Z do this, but having that support group can be huge to acceptance and helping the client see that it is a, a positive thing and, and to be patient, you know, if something happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of really great tips on taking care of these CKD kitties and then just some really good information for all of us as far as what is a renal diet? Why are we feeding renal diets and, and driving home the importance of keeping nutrition in mind when we're managing these guys? So Lindsay, always a pleasure. This was so much fun as always. Thank you again for joining me. And Cassie, you as well. I, I think you and I could take over the world podcast style. So thank you so, so much for inviting me back and for giving me yet another opportunity to do what I love. And that's to talk nutrition. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did and took away a lot of good learning points in helping these poor CKD kitties. I want to say a big thank you to Elenko for making this episode possible, and thank you so much to Dr. Bolin for joining me. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember... If one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.